Living Hero, Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, host and producer of the show, and I'm really so happy you're here to join us for a special production today, Concentrating the Hell Out of Mind. I am personally celebrating this year 25 years as a practitioner of insight meditation, otherwise known as vipassana. And last year, I was privileged to spend six months in silent, intensive retreat doing concentration practice from early morning until late at night. Now, these practices in the insight meditation tradition are known as jhana, J-H-A-N-A. And the experience of jhana was so extraordinary that I've created this production to share what it is, what it's like, what its effects are, and its potential for transforming our experience of life and, by extension, our society. I've arranged to speak with several recognized jhana adepts, teachers, and authors of books on jhana. There are eight levels of jhana. And... These all work to help us liberate our minds and free us from obsessive thoughts, fear, worry, insecurity, bitterness, anger, dullness, distraction, illusions, and all the static overlays of the mind that are part of our stress and keep us bound up in old patterns and outlooks that are detrimental and disturbing to ourselves, to each other, and that really negatively impact the world around us, near and far. You'll be hearing the voices of Shyla Catherine, who is a meditation teacher in the South Bay of San Francisco and author of both Focused and Fearless and Wisdom Wide and Deep. Also, Tina Rasmussen and her husband, Stephen Snyder, who teach meditation and jhana retreats and are co-authors of Practicing the Jhanas. Lee Brasington, who teaches jhana retreats and is currently finishing his book, The Buddha's Jhanas. And Judson Brewer, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Yale University and medical director of the Yale Therapeutic Neuroscience Clinic and a jhana practitioner himself. And now I am very pleased to present Concentrating the Hell Out of Mind. This is in its infancy. Almost nobody knows anything about the jhanas, even in Buddhism, let alone in scientific circles. I mean, the practices we're teaching, they've been reserved for monastics, let alone women, you know, women Lay women? No way. They would have never had access to any of this. I can talk about the basis for it and what we're doing, but we haven't collected enough subjects yet for us to actually analyze any of the data. So I can tell you, well, there's a little bit that we can link in in terms of some of the real-time neurofeedback that we're doing, um, but we haven't, we've only had three subjects or so because it's really hard to find good jhana practitioners. <laughs> so. This is the time that lay people can really embody what we all are experiencing in meditation and the spiritual practices that we're doing to not have to keep that separate from the rest of our lives where there's this duality of going off to retreats and having experiences and then coming back and sort of having to either hide that or feel as though that can't be embodied. Many students come back to the breath as their object throughout the day while they're in the grocery line, while they're sitting in a meeting at a stoplight. I mean, I've been known to do these practices or at least have a portion of my attention, not 100% the way I would meditating, but 30% while I'm sitting in a meeting. I can have that awareness all the time. And, you know, there's something about um, these practices coming out of the sequestered monastic situation and into everyday life and being studied. You know, even your radio program is a great example of this, that this might not have happened 10 years ago. 
very little had been written in the contemporary Western Buddhist literature. And so people didn't really know how to do them, didn't really know how to develop concentration through this systematic method. The word jhana means, it could be translated as meditative absorption. It's a Pali word that really literally means meditation. And when the Buddha would tell his monks after giving a talk, there are roots of trees, there are empty huts, go meditate. He used the verb form of jhana, so go practice meditative absorption. Get your mind extremely concentrated. When, when we talk about the jhana, of course, we're referring to one of the uh, levels of concentration. And with concentration meditation, there's the three levels of momentary concentration, access concentration, and absorption. And the absorption is commonly referred to as jhana, which is a different uh, level than the other two, of course. So there's a unification of mind that is happening as a result of our intention and effort to come back to our object of meditation. And it's important to know that each time we come back to the object of meditation, say one sits down for the first period of meditation, and each time they return to the object, they are receiving, they are engaged in purification of mind because they're choosing to return to the object and leave their thinking and their patterning. We're just resting in our own awareness rather than being spun around by compulsive thinking. This is the reconditioning of the mind stream that starts to happen. It might be easiest for people to think of it in contrast to the daily life. Because in daily life, we are engaged in a lot of activities and we re are continuously responding to stimulus. And as we develop a meditative concentration, we focus our attention on a particular meditation object or on the mind itself and develop a profound stability by repeatedly attending to a single object of concentration. Through this repeated development of concentration, the mind becomes unified. And when it's unified, it's not distracted. So we're not pulled into wanting this and avoiding that. We're not drawn out by all the senses to respond to touch or to sound or to sight or to any sensory experience. We're not pulled into thoughts about the past or the future. It, it's almost like there's a frequency, like a radio frequency. And when that mind stream gets to the frequency that matches, let's say, first jhana, then first jhana arises. The flavor is of peaceful happiness, deep, deep ease and stability of mind. It was just a, a big rush of wonderful energy. As I practiced it over the years and then eventually began teaching it, I realized that what was necessary was to generate some what we call access concentration today, uh, a, a good sense of the mind getting quiet and still, not completely without thoughts, but with the thoughts that are there not distracting me, and then focus on something pleasant. And when I did, that rush of joyous energy would come and fill my body again, and fill my body and my mind. And it was just a really excellent and pleasant place to be. Entering into an absorption is classically described as being a state of seclusion. And what are we secluded from? There are many levels of seclusion, but we might say we're secluded from unwholesome states because hindrances and reactions and negativity are no longer arising in the mind. We could say that we are secluded from craving, but we also might see that as being secluded from the senses. So the mind dwells within a steady perception of a mental object. 
the mind rests within itself and is not pulled into all the different sensory experiences of turning to look at this through the sight or getting involved in this smell or this taste or feeling all sorts of things in the body or being stimulated by lots of different emotions and thoughts. So when the mind is secluded, it rests within a steady perception of its meditation object. And the experience of that settledness is one of profound ease and joy and happiness. expect that many of the people who tune into this may not have had meditation experience at all and don't know that in the teachings and certainly in your experience and many others that jhanas have eight levels and that Mm -hmm. these levels involve more and more letting go and deeper and deeper experiences of altered states of consciousness. Would you like to talk about that process of going deeper? Right. So there are these eight levels. Actually, in the early literature, there are the four jhanas and the four immaterial states. Uh, but in later literature, and it became convenient to refer to them as the eight jhanas. The first one is full of joyous energy. Uh, it's, it's similar energy to what we think of when we hear perhaps the phrase kundalini energy. And it's quite intense, and it gets old pretty quickly. And it turns out that it's possible to take a deep breath, and when you really let out on the exhale, it'll calm that energy down and leave you in a place that isn't as energized but is equally happy. And now when you're in the second jhana, you're focused on this state of happiness. Let your mind, instead of following your breath or a mantra or anything like that, just simply come to rest on the emotional sense of feeling happy. It's a pretty good place to hang out. You are happy for no particular reason. The third of these states is to calm the happiness down to contentment. So the the energy level drops once again. Notice that these things are getting more subtle as you go along. There's all this energy which isn't subtle at all, then there's happiness, and then a more refined contentment. And then the fourth of the states, again dropping the energy level and letting go of all the pleasantness of being contented and putting the mind into a a very emotionally neutral state, then what we have is a state of quiet stillness. And this produces quite concentrated state. Uh, These are the states that are talked about the most in the ancient literature, and these are the states that the Buddha defined as right concentration. There are four additional states. The first one is called the realm of infinite space. It's quite different from the other states. It is approached by basically a visualization, an imagining of something expanding. You can expand the boundaries of your being. You can expand an imaginary balloon. Uh, You could follow a beam of light far off into the distance. The idea is to get your attention moving further and further away from you. And if you can stay focused on that, there will be a sudden shift, and it will seem as though a vast, empty space has appeared before you. Um... This is a much more subtle state than the previous ones. And as you move into a more subtle state, of course, you need a more deeply concentrated mind. If you can maintain focus on a more subtle state, then, of course, your mind becomes even more concentrated. The sixth of these states is infinite consciousness, and that's a shift from this this infinite space to your consciousness of that infinite space which, of course, has to be as big as the infinite space. Um, It's getting pretty subtle at this point. The seventh is a state of no-thingness, nothingness, which is approached by becoming aware of the content of this infinite consciousness. And you 
nothing there, really. The sense of space is long gone. And you're, you're focused on the sense of nothing. It's, it's quite remarkable that you find that your mind will just settle in, focused on literally nothing. And then the eighth of these states is called the state of neither perception nor non-perception. And it's a state that doesn't have any characteristics by which you can describe it. Your mind is simply in a state you can't describe, but you know your, your mind is in a state you can't describe, which it's very subtle and very difficult to maintain, but again, produces very deep concentration states. Now, Judd, do you think that the subjective experience of these jhana levels, are these states describable? <laughs> um, I remember when I first got into the first jhana, it felt the best way I could describe it was like being dragged behind a motorboat um, without skis, um, but in a very pleasant way. <laughs> there was this, there was this energetic buzz that was something I had never felt before, and it was like we went from zero to sixty. You know, where the guy hit the throttle on the motorboat, and just suddenly I was being dragged along with this energetic uh, feeling. Even the first jhana feels immensely more pleasant than any, you know, than eating chocolate or, or doing anything through the sense desire door. The first experience, I, <laughs> I had no idea what happened. I was sitting there about probably 35 or 40 minutes into a 45-minute sitting, and my back was killing me. Uh, I was sitting on a little cushion, and I slid forward on the cushion, and my sits bones slipped off the front edge of the cushion, but my tailbone was still on the cushion. And this had the effect of propelling my spine into exactly the right upright posture without having to use the muscles in my back, which all suddenly relaxed, and I was just flooded with this joyous energy. It was like, whoa, this is nice. Some people experience it with a lot of energy. There'll be a rush of delight, of joy, of rapturous bliss, of lots of, of energy as though one is, um, I don't know, uh, plugged into some kind of a, of a power source. But many people will experience it as just a deep calmness. But there's a stability so that when the mind is placed on the meditation object, it doesn't fall off. If you look at the different presentations of this practice, they do vary quite a lot. So in the tradition that we know and teach, which is that of Venerable Pauk Saidao, a full jhana absorption is distinctly different than access concentration and really is a non-dual state in which the sense of self is absent and there's awareness of the object of meditation, which in there's 40 different objects that the Buddha taught, but most of the time it's the breath in a certain location. And then there are other factors of the mind that are produced when one's concentration um, develops and the mind stream unifies. It's a perception, and perceptions vary person by person. You might think of it as entering a door, entering into a room, where you can be at the threshold looking in, or you can actually enter in and then close the door behind you. There's a sense of, of deep safety. There's no negative uh, thinking at all. There's no what's called defilement or 
um, unwholesome state at all in the mind. It's a very pure state of mind that approaches jhana. Our perspective is that it's not really an altered state, that it is a non-ordinary state rather than altered. I mean, there that's, you know, a common term, but uh, it may not be ordinary, but it is the potential of the mind stream to experience itself as free from the hindrances and defilements. What tendencies of the mind hinder going into the non-dual state, hinder going into that non-thinking, silent space of the mind? There's the three primary ones, which are desire, or sometimes it's referred to as greed, aversion, which is sometimes referred to as hatred, and then and then delusion or ignorance, which is more like falling asleep to ourselves or becoming kind of confused. And we all have some configuration of all three of these. But if we look, we can see that, you know, a lot of where our mind goes naturally and, and also a lot of the suffering, that sort of peak and valley of the human experience instead of just resting in our own nature where there's a satisfaction that goes beyond circumstances, we're trying to get things. And then we, we may, you know, compulsively try to get them and then we get them and there's some short-term satisfaction, but ultimately it's not an end point. There's always something more we have to get. That's desire. Aversion is when things are happening we don't like and we just try and try and try to make the circumstances such that we don't have to deal with those. That's aversion. And the truth is we can't control everything in our lives. So there's always going to be things that we don't like. And then delusion is more where we go unconscious, the, the mindless TV watching, the consumption of substances that sort of let us numb out. It's the numbing out where we get so overwhelmed that really numbing out becomes a, a solution. So these are the three main patterns. We were talking to my parents the other day, and my dad is now going around looking for times when he's experiencing these. And you don't have to even meditate to start noticing how these arise and affect us in ways that, that aren't very pleasant. So meditation gives us a chance to see these, to break through them, and then to see really what's our true nature underneath that. It's important to understand, too, the defilements, as Tina's talking about them, that these are really qualities that we have learned. So they're not necessarily inherent qualities in the same way that the uh, experience of jhana, the, the, the qualities of our true nature, are inherent. purification of mind really is the purpose of the practice. As the mind approaches this deep stability that has the potential for absorption, in that approach, it's a development of purification. It's a development of letting go of distraction, of letting go of um, any unwholesome state, desire, aversion, uh, restlessness, agitation, fear, all the thoughts in the wandering mind, um, all the ways that we conceive of ourselves, all of that settles and we find a deeply quiet abiding, a strong development of certain wholesome states of mind that include experiences of deep joy. But thoughts don't really end until we enter into the absorption. getting into the different jhanas, it really felt like an energetic step down in terms of a relief to let go of some of the components that made the first jhana and in getting into the second jhana and then let go of piti to get into the third jhana and then let go of sukha, you know, of, of bliss to get into the fourth jhana of equanimity. And this letting go, letting go, letting go helped me start to see when I could stabilize these different states with a quieter mind. The mind could move around and start to see where there's an even quieter state, it can find its way into the next jhana and so on and so on. So that was really, really, really interesting. And it showed me where I was holding on to stuff and where there were levels of suffering that I'd never seen before because they were um, tucked in the baseline of a lot of noise.
You've been listening to Judson Brewer, Shyla Catherine, Tina Rasmussen, Stephen Snyder, Lee Brasington, and your host here, Jari Chevalier. This is The Living Hero Show, and we're going to take a short break for messages and be back in just a few minutes. Stay with us for more of this special program, Concentrating the Hell Out of Mind. Living Hero, conversations with living luminaries and mavericks. We're back with Concentrating the Hell Out of Mind with Shyla Catherine, Judson Brewer, Tina Rasmussen, Stephen Snyder, and Lee Brasington. One could conceive of meditation from beginning to end as a process of letting go and release in the development of concentration and insight. Just to begin the practice, we have to sit down and be quiet. So we would have had to let go of the pull of our schedule and our demands. And for at least a few minutes, turn off the TV, turn off the computer, take a few quiet minutes. So we have to let go of something just to begin. And then as we develop the mind, we're continuously abandoning, letting go of reactions, unwholesome states, the anger, the greed, the hatred, the cruelty, the confusion, all the things that distort our consciousness. But that's just the beginning of the letting go. As the mind becomes quiet and pure, there is a growth of wholesome states, but it's important not to become attached even to the wholesome states. And so there is a relinquishing of the rapture and pleasure that to develop with the concentration. So there's no attachment to that anymore. There's a relinquishment of the deep happiness that is associated with concentration. There is basically an abandonment of any attachment to the very wholesome states that we have cultivated. How does this show up in your daily life? I was quite surprised at the powerful effect that deep concentration had on my daily life. And when I left my first long concentration retreat, the concentration state ended when I interacted and began working and was busy again because we don't walk around in life in an absorbed state of concentration. But I could see profound changes, and they were primarily around an experience of deep happiness, profound happiness that pervaded everything. Not, I wasn't giddy and smiling all the time, but there was a deep contentment and ease that, that hasn't left. It's reduced suffering dramatically. So there's just so much less reactivity and um, capacity to be in touch with that deeper nature on a much more ongoing basis. There was a tremendous increase in equanimity. Equanimity describes a profound balance of mind where we're not pulled off by reactions and desire and aversion and wanting and not wanting but we can abide meeting whatever experience is happening as it's happening in it with a balanced mind so the combination of deep contentment and happiness that's kind of like an undercurrent in my experience and this equanimity that meets the changing experiences of daily life has simply reduced suffering. What it's done to my mind is give me a mind that, well, as it says in the discourses, that's concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, which I can direct and incline to knowing and seeing. 
In other words, it prepares my mind to investigate reality from that less egocentric perspective. It's so motivating because it's like, this is the most true thing I've ever experienced. Meditation is absolutely an antidote to this, you know, hyperactive, reactive, you know, the cell phone goes off, the emails, the texts, the, you know, our world has gone in a direction that is even less supportive than it was 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. We've gotten more and more distracted. And that's the world. So that probably isn't going to change. But what can be an offset to that so that we can have a sense of that inner quietude, that stillness, the ability to focus without it being a strain? All of these are cultivated in this practice. As far as ADHD goes and distraction, it's really interesting. And there's a fair amount of data behind this now that our iPhones are killing us. They're poison uh, because one of the strongest uh, forms of learning is intermittent reinforcement. And iPhones, basically, when you have your tweets and your text messaging and your email alerts set to buzz or chirp or whatever, they do this in a random way. So you get intermittent reinforcement when you hear these things and you start to learn to become slave of your your iPhone. You know, some people describe their Blackberries as Crackberries because they're addicted to them. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that whenever people are bored, when there's that slightest bit of discomfort there, instead of just sitting with it, they can pull out their iPhone and surf the internet so they can distract themselves. So we're learning to become these distraction machines and to become slave to this technology that's supposed to be helpful for us, which can be if, if used wisely, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As you were speaking, I was thinking of the term squirrely <laughs> and, and how um, concentration practice really is the opposite of the squirrely mind, right? Absolutely, it is. Absolutely. All of this stuff in terms of what we are bombarded with in terms of mass media is just makes us squirrelier and squirrelier, as does if we're not living ethically. There's, you know, good luck trying to get into jhana. That reward never comes because it only stimulates more desire and more craving and more craving and more craving, leading us inevitably to feeling dissatisfied and experiencing suffering. Now we know this just when we go to the store, you buy something and sometimes you get out of the store and instead of enjoying what you have, there's immediately a desire for something else. You might know this if you take a bite of your favorite dessert. And before you've even been satisfied with that first bite or mindfully taken the second bite, there's this movement in the mind towards getting another piece, a second helping or another bite. And any meditative practice or any mindfulness discipline, even if it's not in meditation, but just as in the way we encounter experience, that brings us into the here and now and has us be awake to what's actually happening is going to weaken that habitual force that keeps reaching towards satisfaction in the future where it never happens. I'm an absolute failure as a consumer. You know, I, I buy airplane tickets to fly off to teach retreats, though lately I've been trying to take the train more. Uh, you know, I eat food. You know, that's about it. I, I just am not a, a consumer. I, I, don't, I have a, a $20 phone and a $25 every three-month phone plan. It's really amazing that we have wound up with a culture that is desperately pursuing stuff that's not going to make people happy what might our families, our societies, our daily life be like if this was the focus of what we were doing with these mind-body systems? You know what I'm saying, Jed? Absolutely. Don't, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> we are something more than just the body and our personality. I mean, this is, this is where the Buddha said 
don't take my word for it. Know for yourself. And when people experience freedom from the hindrances and the defilements, even for five minutes, even for one minute, and with this practice, people can experience it a lot more than that for, for days on retreat. It's like, that's what I am. People get a real sense, this is what I am. There's a mystery there that, that people can experience for themselves to know that there's something more fundamental than just my day-to-day life, paying bills and mortgages and going to work. And, you know, all those things are important, too. And there's something beyond that. That We're at a point where it's not just doing the deep practice and the experiences of realization or deep, non-ordinary states of of, uh, non-dual nature, but it's really the embodiment. It's really Mm -hmm. how does this come in, come back into your individual consciousness, what's changed, and most particularly, how does it change your behavior? So the the task on the retreats we have when people leave is we really encourage them to really look at how are you different and how does this new different you need to be expressed? So this begins changing the behavior. And in that respect, reducing the places of regret that people have and the places for greed and desire. So we're really lessening the patterning of suffering and we're really increasing the deep satisfaction we get from being more in touch with who we really are. What's the purpose of all this? You know, there is an evolution of consciousness that that we really believe is happening. And now is the time that householders, not just monastics, but householders can have very robust spiritual lives while being married, having jobs and other things. And we are so excited about the human potential. It's a matter of time and commitment and practice. We live in a culture that has an incredible incredibly short attention span, and meditation is the complete opposite of short attention span. It took me really three years to get good enough in my meditation to where I was able to first stumble into a jhana. Uh, Now, it wasn't three years of really dedicated practice. It was off and on, and sometimes it was really good, and sometimes it was, well, hardly even happening. Uh, But the the thing is that what's necessary is to realize this is a worthwhile goal and put in the time and energy and use your patience until things start actually taking you in a direction that you want to go. And for many people, It does take a lot of development. It does take time. It does take effort. For some people, their progress is remarkably rapid. It doesn't matter the pace of the development. It doesn't matter if it's quick or if it's slow. It doesn't matter if it's easy or difficult. That trajectory, that aim to clarify the mind is worth taking any steps in that direction. Mm-hmm. And it is cumulative. If somebody hasn't trained their mind, uh, they might well be pushed and pulled by whatever um, conditions or impressions seem dominant at that moment, which could be because of repeated patterns in the past that they've grown strong, or it could just be the particular environment that they're in. So any meditation practice that helps develop mindfulness and calmness and helps us look into our minds, can give us a way to intervene into those habitual processes that lead to suffering so that we can enter into a path that's going to lead to peace. Do it every day just the way you would shower or something else. So that's how we do it. We've been meditating daily for, you know, decades. And that is what we really encourage people to do, even if it's a short amount of time. Do it every day. One of the big teachings that we start with and we emphasize quite strongly in our teaching is sila, which is really wholesome living. How is what we are experiencing on the inside being expressed on the outside? Congruence between the inner and outer. We have to value peace, inner peace, as well as outer peace. Sometimes people think, oh, peace sounds good. It's a great idea. And, of course, on the surface, 
say they value peace. But what are we doing to create peace in our lives, in our minds, in the way we encounter the world? In other words, it's not the jhanas in and of themselves. It's what you do with the mind generated by moving through the jhanas. Orienting us towards something that's more true and away from what's false, meaning that we don't we don't hold the personality as being the center of our universe. Yeah, imagine the um, the suffering that would end if we were not pulled into thoughts that hurt us within our own minds. The world isn't doing this to us. Our own mental conditioning is causing that level of suffering, the suffering of thought. So much depression, so much anxiety, so much fear, so much um, addiction and craving and unwholesome action happens because we just don't have control over our minds. Obsessive thoughts, right? Obsessive, you know, repeating, going around and around this worrisome circle. Yeah, people suffer terribly um, with obsessive thoughts. And meditation provides the skills to counter some of those tendencies. We use the metaphor of it being like a muscle, like going to the gym. And at first, you may try and lift a 20-pound weight, and it's very heavy. But as you bring your awareness back over and over to the object, our natural inherent faculty of concentration gets developed. In the experience of jhana, our our consciousness is really being steeped Mm -hmm. in the quality of pure, true nature, so we're really being infused with that on a energetic level. It, and even though there's not much, if any, awareness of the body, there's a way the body is being, on a cellular level, it's being infused with this pure consciousness, this, this you know, what is our true nature? I mean, ultimately, of course, we all learn that that is who we truly are. When we use concentration as a basis for insight, we look at the mind and we look at the body, everything of mind and matter, and we realize that everything is continuously changing. There's a flow of changing experiences that make up this world, that make up our experience of the world. And there's no place in there that we can become fixed and attached. This is how it is. I am like this. Those don't make any sense when we see the impermanent nature of mind and body. And so there's a letting go of the attachment to any fixed notion of mind or matter. We observe very clearly the changing nature of experience, whether we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. It's a flow of changing events, being known, being perceived, without attachment. In general, when we encounter the world in any form, whether it be on the meditation cushion or driving down the freeway or talking to your best friend or anything, we're approaching it from an egocentric perspective. Uh, it's not quite, can I eat that, will that eat me? We are a little more sophisticated than that. But it's pretty much, is this something that I want more of or want to keep or protect, or is this something I need to push away and prevent from coming back? It's all about me. Moving through these jhanas prepares your mind so that you're in a much less egocentric uh, place and then stepping out of the jhanas and beginning to examine reality using some other meditation technique is going to give you a much better perspective on what's actually there as opposed to having a usual egocentric perspective. Seeing what's actually there, what's truly happening, is the basis of waking up, of enlightenment. And those veils start becoming lifted and everything is, it's like a miracle just looking around the room. This is how it actually is. That's reality. Yeah. Yes. And when you speak about experiencing the self in a completely different way, I remember this is also on retreat and this is why retreats can be so valuable, looking towards the sun and just having this deep knowing that what's happening here, this is the sun beholding the sun. Right. 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 It's the true nature experiencing itself. This provides a method 
a, a tried and true for thousands of years methodology that can lead to that as opposed to other, like, for example, there are many non-dual teachers now who speak of this potential of moments or even ongoing experiences of awakening, but there's not so much a methodology. And this, what we're finding is that people who find access to the jhanas and to these kinds of ways of knowing their deeper nature, it can be repeatable. There's a direct knowing that's unmediated by those normal veils of separation that we walk around with. There's the potential that that can thin. We we call this the thinning of the me. And as our true nature shines through and we become more steeped in that, there's the potential for, for the direct knowing, the brightness. Well, that is always there. It's just that normally we have thoughts and reactions and other things that are in between the direct knowing of objects of awareness and the know and the actual knowing. brain on jhanas. There are lots of areas that get quieter, and there are a few areas that get more active. Uh, The areas that get more active are probably the most interesting. The left prefrontal cortex is associated with more positive emotional states, and it's very clear as I move through these jhanas that there's more activity in the left prefrontal cortex. Even in the fourth one, which subjectively is a very emotionally neutral state, there's considerably more activity in the left prefrontal cortex than the right prefrontal cortex, the right being associated with uh, unhelpful emotions. The uh, other place where I've worked with these sort of thing is at uh, Yale with uh, Dr. Judson Brewer there, and I've done both fMRI and EEG with him as well. But the problem is there's just not enough money to do all the analysis. People get grants to do some specific thing, and nobody has ever yet gotten a grant to study the jhanas. They're just not that well known. So what I can say is definitely the jhanas light up the parts of your brain that are associated with positive emotions. And I've also learned from what little data we have, they seem to light up uh, the reward centers of the brain, which makes perfect sense. When you're feeling really happy, you're feeling really rewarded. Given that it seems from neuroscience that whatever mind states you exercise on a regular basis tend to become your default mind states, the long-term prognosis for a jhana practitioner would be that they become happier and their life feels more rewarded. And Uh, I would say that's definitely what's happened to me over the last 25 years. Usually funding needs to have some sort of payoff and with these states, in a sense, they are their own payoff. What would your funding pitch sound like? What would that be about? How are you framing it? Mm, that's an interesting question. We haven't actually gone for a lot of funding for this genre research yet. Um, some of it is that it is on the far spectrum of of normalcy. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so to go to a funding agency, it's hard enough to get money to study meditation in itself, even though meditation, you know, with the mindfulness-based stress reduction programs, for example, it's it's being proven over and over again that it helps everything from stress to addictions. So that part, we have more solid ground to go for funding, you know, to, to apply for funding, but even that is really difficult to get funding with. We live in a world where there is ignorance and cruelty. I'm not suggesting a kind of utopia or a fantasy of a different society. But I do think we can ask ourselves 
and we can ask each other to look at our minds and to look at the roots. Are we acting out of greed? And if so, do we really need to do that? In fact, do we really want to do that? Because when we pause and think, we might realize that actually we really want something that will lead to peace, not just to more accumulation. And if we're acting out of jealousy, out of hatred, out of anger, we might ask ourselves, is that really what we want to condition? Is that really what we want, the pattern that we really want to develop in our lives and in our relationships? And for the most part, most people will say no and perhaps be inspired to uh, learn another way of relating to things that is not based on this um, angry reaction, this blaming reaction, or this aversive reaction. And so we learn to bring ourselves into a calm and profound experience of the present moment. When we are with what is, with calmness and with mindfulness, I have tremendous confidence that our response to it will be wiser. And that provides such a bigger context to life, to what this life is all about for myself, for others, and to see the potential we have as humans to really come into a much fuller expression of what it means to be human. 5,000 years or more of this practice, and maybe it even has more relevance today with our complicated psychologies and lives than it did thousands of years ago. Uh, My name is Lee Brasington. I'm Judson Brewer. I'm Shyla Catherine. I'm Tina Rasmussen. And I'm Steven Snyder. That's it for today's Living Hero Show. So glad you were right here with us. Tune in each week, Saturday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern at 91.1 in Plainfield and 91.7 in Hardwick in north-central Vermont and streaming live wherever you are at wgdr.org. Podcasts of this show can be found at livinghero.com and on iTunes. Subscribe to our RSS feed and join us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter, Living Hero Pod is our handle. Leave comments on the podcast page at livinghero.com. This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Thanks so much for being here. Be well, and see you back here next time.